Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about ovarian cancer with Dr. Elena Ratner. Dr. Ratner is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit more about ovarian cancer. I know that a lot of people have heard about it, but they may not know as much about it as they know about other cancers. So what exactly is it? How common is it? And who gets it? Um, thank you, Anise. That's a perfect question to start with. And it is so wonderful to be able to discuss this with you today and uh, with our listeners as it is Ovarian Cancer Month, and we are trying to raise awareness for this cancer. So ovarian cancer overall is not very common. Um, only um, 1.4% of lifetime risk of getting the cancer. And this cancer is more prevalent in certain groups. Um, genetic predisposition plays a very important role, um, as do some other factors. And I'm sure you and I will, will discuss those today during our conversation. Uh, but the important thing about ovarian cancer is that, unfortunately, it still continues to be a very deadly cancer. 24,000 women uh, get this cancer yearly in the United States, and as high as 16,000 women die from this cancer. Um, and the reason for that is because, unfortunately, this is a cancer that is very difficult to diagnose early. We used to say that this is the cancer that whispers. And during our conversation today, I would like to prove to you that that is not the case. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, these cancers, unfortunately, are frequently diagnosed at a later stage. Um, and even though most of them respond very nicely to chemotherapy up front, these are very, very smart cancers. And unfortunately, they learn how to resist the treatment that we give them. Um, and again, during our conversation today, I would like to discuss with you um, as to how the treatment for these cancers is really improving. And there's so many new treatments and new ways of management that we are using now that we didn't have six months ago, two years ago. So the um, outlook for this cancer looks very bright, uh, but this is a very important cancer to be aware of uh, because we as women are our best advocates and we are fighters for our own lives and our own bodies. And that's why it's very important to know about this cancer and to know what symptoms to look out for. Yeah, so a lot to a lot to cover in this show, and I'm really excited to to talk about this. So let's start with risk factors. So who gets ovarian cancer? Are all women equally at risk, or are there some things that really predispose some women um, to getting ovarian cancer? You mentioned, for example, genetics. 
Yeah, so there's definitely factors that increase your risk um, of getting ovarian cancer. Um, we now understand that genetics plays such an important role in all cancers, most likely, but definitely so uh, for ovarian cancer. Um, and it's not just for women who have family history of ovarian cancers. We know that there's genetic mutations that um, increase your risk of ovarian cancer and breast cancer and pancreatic cancer and melanomas and prostate cancer in men. Um, so when we talk about genetic predisposition and when I talk to my women about their risks, I don't just ask whether somebody in the family had ovarian cancer, even though, of course, that in itself would be a risk factor, but it's more what other cancers run in the family. Is there a lot of uh, family members who had breast cancer? Is there anybody who is a male who had breast cancer? And those um, concubinates conc of cancers are um, suspicious for BRCA gene mutation. Um, there's been quite a bit in the news about BRCA gene mutation over the past five years or so. Um, as you remember, Angelina Jolie, uh, who has one of these mutations, uh, wrote um, a number of different New York Times editorials talking about her experience with the mutation. Um, so it's called the Angelina Jolie effect. And now there's much more known about this mutation um, and about how women uh, with this mutation mutation, um, have a higher risk of uh, developing ovarian cancer and breast cancer, for example. Uh, but BRCA mutation is just one of those mutations. There's many other mutations uh, that predispose you to getting these cancers. Um, and that's why nowadays it is so important to know your family history and to know where you come from and to know what possible genetic mutations you might have that might predispose you to having a higher risk of different cancers, in particular ovarian cancer. So that's that's so important. Um, but, you know, for for women who may not have a BRCA gene mutation running in their family or who may not have a family history of any cancers or for those who really don't know their family history, maybe they're adopted and, and um, or or have come from families where they really haven't gotten any of that knowledge passed on to them before uh, before people passed away. Are there other risk factors that also play into your ovarian cancer risk? Yeah, so they are. Um, and like everything that you and I are going to talk about today, um, so much of all of this is truly individualized. You know, there's no formula, there's no specific checkoff list. It is really just um, talking to women and kind of understanding what are their risks, what are the protective things that they kind of bring to the table when we look uh, for their risks of ovarian cancer. Um, so, for example, um, women who have had a lot of children, uh, it is very protective uh, for anybody who has had five children that decreases their risk uh, to uh, 50%. Um, anybody who breastfeds each one of their five children for five years uh, cumulatively has a decreased risk um, of ovarian cancer by 50%. Women who use birth control pills, birth control pills are incredibly protective for ovarian cancer. Um, every opportunity I get, every girlfriend that I talk to, I always tell uh, my listeners and my patients and my friends to, unless there's any contraindications, to try to use birth control pills uh, for five years if they can. Anybody who uses birth control pills for five years decreases their risk of ovarian cancer by 50%. 
Um, anybody who uses it for 10 years decreases it for as high as 80%. Anybody who uses it for 15 years decreases it for as high as 90%. So wow. the benefit is really quite astounding um, as to what we can do. Um, women who, um, for, for, who had their fallopian tubes removed, you know, in the older days, we used to do tubal ligations. Um, now, in many cases, we actually would take out the fallopian tube, and that significantly decreases your risk for as high as 70%. Um, somebody who had a hysterectomy, even if their ovaries were left behind, that significantly decreases their risk. Um, so there's a number of different protective factors um, that, um, you, that one can do to try to decrease their risk. It has to do with what we now think of ovarian cancer. You know, there's two different ways that we now think of ovarian cancer. The um, traditional theory of ovarian cancer was that the more times that the woman ovulates, the more is her risk of developing cancer of the ovaries. And that's why anytime when you're not ovulating, whether it's pregnant, it's pregnancy or you're breastfeeding or your birth control pills, uh, that decreases your risk. The newer thought is that ovarian cancers might not actually be ovarian cancers at all. They actually might be fallopian tube cancers that then subsequently spread to the ovaries. And that's why it is so important that if you're having hysterectomy, Fallopian tubes do not have a purpose. Um, ovaries, of course, do because they give you hormones. But fallopian tubes, the only purpose of fallopian tubes is for pregnancy. So many times when women have hysterectomies and their ovaries are left behind, it is very, very important that the fallopian tubes are removed as well. Or if the fallopian tubes are tied, that actually fallopian tube gets removed rather than just tying it. Because we now know that a great number of these cancers originate in the fallopian tubes. So if those are removed, then the risk is significantly decreased. All great information. Now, let's suppose, you know, you've, you've tried to minimize your risk. Um, but still, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that the part of ovarian cancer that causes death is because it's caught late. And so, you know, we know for many cancers that there is effective screening, right? We're heading into October, breast cancer awareness. We all know that mammograms help us to find breast cancer early. Um, what do we have or do we have anything in terms of screening to help women to find ovarian cancer early? So that's exactly the trouble with ovarian cancer. Um, and that's why we talk so much about ovarian cancer prevention uh, with identifying your risks and trying to do anything you can to decrease your risk. Because unfortunately, we do not have as good of a test for ovarian cancer as we do for breast cancer with mammograms. Um, for ovarian cancer, um, there is a lot of literature that uh, shows that there's really no benefit to doing routine ultrasounds in the normal risk population, uh, because unfortunately these ultrasounds, even in combination with a tumor marker blood test called CA125, um, there's literature that in the normal population that does not help you detect cancers early, uh, and on the contrary, 
pushes women to have more unnecessary surgery. Uh, but that's not the case for high-risk women, for women who are at higher risk, uh, for whatever risk factors that we discussed previously. Um, then um, ultrasounds combined with this blood test called C125 are of benefit, but unfortunately still are very limited. Um, and that's why it is so important for this ovarian cancer awareness um, to uh, exist and for women to know the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer, because that is really the best screening or the best uh, early detection and risk reduction is through awareness of the symptoms and listening to your body. Yeah. And so one of the things that you said at the outset is that for for many years, um, ovarian cancer was thought about as the cancer that whispers because so many of the signs and symptoms may be things that women may shrug off. They may not be really aware of as being potential red flags for ovarian cancer. So tell us more about those signs and symptoms that women should be aware of to be thinking about ovarian cancer. And when should they be going and seeing their gynecologist? Right. So for generations, uh, we used to say, you know, there's just nothing you can do. Ovarian cancer, it's what it is. You just cannot diagnose it early because there's no early symptoms. Uh, but we know that that is not the case. Uh, multiple very good studies have been published to show that, yes, majority of women, 97% of women with um, advanced ovarian cancer will have symptoms, but 89% of women with stage one and two cancers will also have have symptoms. Um, the trouble is exactly, Anise, how you said that these are also normal symptoms. That these are symptoms of perimenopause. That this is symptoms of. Um, having a period, these are hormonal changes. So great majority of the women who have the symptoms are actually completely normal. Um, and the symptoms that we're talking about is uh, bloating, some uh, bowel dysfunction, uh, some constipation, some diarrhea, um, bladder symptoms, um, weight gain, clothes not fitting well, feeling like you need to um, get bigger clothes because they're not fitting well around the waist. Um, the important thing, again, and this is, I think, the most important thing of our conversation today, is that a great, great majority of the women who are listening to this today, we all experienced in symptoms, and a great majority of these symptoms are completely normal. The symptoms that we need to pay attention to are the symptoms that don't just happen during your periods or during your ovulation. Those are the symptoms that happen every single day for two weeks. And also symptoms that, come, that happen together, let's say bowel and bladder symptoms, uh, bloating and bladder symptoms, those are the symptoms to pay attention to. Um, yeah. We're going to dig into all of those symptoms and how we can actually make a diagnosis right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the treatment and diagnosis of ovarian cancer with my guest, Dr. Elena Ratner. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. 
But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Elena Ratner. We're talking about ovarian cancer, and right before the break, Elena, you started to tell us some of the signs and symptoms that women should really be aware of in terms of trying to find ovarian cancer early because we simply do not have really good screening tests. So it's really up to women to pay attention to their bodies. But one of the things that struck me was that so many of the symptoms you mentioned, a little bit of bloating, a little change in bowel habit or bladder function, a little bit of weight gain, your pants not fitting right. I mean, those happen to all of us all the time, right? You you go out for a big meal um, and you feel a little bloated after that. You might have a little bit of constipation or diarrhea. Your pants don't fit right and you think, oh my God, I'm gaining weight. Um, but should women be going to their gynecologist every time one of those things happen or tell us more about what are really the triggers that you would say, you know what, this has gone on a bit too long. You really need to get to your gynecologist and you need to advocate for yourself that this is something that needs to be looked into. Yes, that's exactly correct. You really nailed, nailed what what we discussed before. Um, yeah, you know, all of us experiencing it, it's totally normal. Um, the key is to know what is normal for you and then be aware when something that happens is not within what's norm for you. Um, so usually what I tell my women is pretty much consistent symptoms. When you wake up every single day and it's something that you are aware of constantly and that lasts for two to three weeks, that is the time to just get checked out. You know, I'm a huge proponent that just talking to somebody or getting things checked out is of such benefit. Um, the interesting things is when um, I speak to my women with ovarian cancer and then in their minds, they go back to when everything began. They know pretty well when it began. You know, it's not subtle. It's just at the time, it just wasn't considered by them um, to be anything that they should really pay attention to, but they knew it well. The other important thing is that a lot of women, when these things happen, actually do not go to gynecologists. Most women go to urologists because they're having bladder symptoms. They go to gastroenterologists because they're getting bowel symptoms. Interestingly, a lot of women go to chiropractors because they're having this discomfort mm-hmm. and they're trying to make that better. Um, so so we actually do tons of education, um, not just to women, but to providers. Um, I actually um, do tons of talks within the 
state of Connecticut to uh, different physicians and different providers. Uh, we have this uh, MET designation that we created to certify physicians and providers who know and know how to identify symptoms of ovarian cancer, because unfortunately, not all of this is just women's symptoms. Many times women go to the physicians appropriately because they know that what they're experiencing is not normal. And that provider checks out hers or his area and clears that up, but unfortunately does not piece things together. Um, and this delayed diagnosis continues. Um, and this is actually a very persistent problem and something that a lot of my women, my patients feel so passionate about that we started this whole program where we are doing a lot of education, not just for women, but for providers to make sure that they know exactly what symptoms and how to identify it and when to refer to gynecologist and when to order an ultrasound. Because, you know, at the end of the day, this should not be yet another thing that women have to worry about. You know, it's important to know your body. It's important to listen to your body. It's important to be your advocate. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I need we need to assure that providers also know the symptoms and know how to piece things together and take best care of these women. Yeah, but I can imagine that many providers are thinking, you know, common things are common. Um, and so really kind of uh, having patients say, well, yeah, I agree that common things are common, but this isn't common for me. Um, so so I think that um, while, while you're quite right, that it's important that providers really know the signs and symptoms, it's also really critical that women advocate for themselves. So Elena, is the first step in diagnosis getting a an ultrasound or a CT, like what what should women expect um, when they go to their family doctor or their gynecologist or their you know their GI doc um, or so or somebody the, with these vague symptoms the and we're trying part, to rule um, out ovarian cancer. Yeah. So important part is to be seen um, by a gynecologist and to do a pelvic exam. Um, those are always very important. And there's a lot of information that we as providers can get out of a physical examination, pelvic examination. Um, um, second step would be to get just an ultrasound. You know, CAT scans and MRIs are usually not necessary and actually not the best tests for these at all. Um, so what we would get is a transvaginal ultrasound. Um, and usually we would not do a tumor marker unless we have to. Tumor marker called CA125, it's not a great test. There's a lot of uh, times that it's falsely positive, so falsely negative. So we won't order it always. We order it in certain circumstances, but only after the ultrasound. So that's what you would expect. Great. And so let's suppose you do that. You've been having these vague symptoms. You go to your doctor. Your doctor says, geez, you know, um, maybe we ought to send you to your gynecologist. The gynecologist does a pelvic exam and a transvaginal ultrasound. And they think that they, they feel something or they see something in the ovary. Now what happens? Um, so women uh, with ovarian cancer, women for whom we suspect ovarian cancer, are managed usually by a team of doctors. Um, you know, the gynecologist, of course, plays a very important role and then um, works together with a gynecologic oncologist like myself, who specializes in treatment and surgeries and chemotherapy for um, these cancers. Um, so the point I wanted to make is how much better things are today than they have been in the past. We now truly provide 
personalized care, um, especially here at Smilo, that is very much um, what we do. And that's very much what's so important to us. Um, surgically, I now can do surgeries laparoscopically or robotically where women can go home same day, whereas four years ago, they would stay in the hospital for a week, if not longer. Um, so surgically, um, if you were concerned about ovarian cancer, you would have a hysterectomy and then you would get a, or you would get a biopsy and we would look under the microscope to try to identify the cells. Um, and that's how diagnosis would be made. Um, but everything nowadays that starts from, from that first step where you have surgery. And again, now we do everything truly in a personal fashion, where many, most women are now great candidates for these robotic surgeries and they have tiny little incisions and they go home same day and they go back to work within a week um, and um, and then extending to chemotherapy where we no longer treat women the same way that we used to treat. We no longer treat somebody the same way just because they have the same cancer as somebody else. We truly study their mutations. We truly understand what is driving and causing the cancer in that particular woman. And then the treatment that we recommend and that we provide is based specifically on that. Um, so we use a lot of targeted therapies. Uh, we use a lot of uh, pills nowadays. You know, some chemotherapies are still through the IV, how they used to be, but a lot of them now are just oral pills that you don't even have to come into the office to get. You can get from home. Um, there's a lot of immunotherapy. There's a lot of these targeted uh, treatments, again, specifically for that patient. And I think that's the key to success and how more and more of these cancers are going to be cured. So that's that's really encouraging. I, I want to take a step back, though. Um, so at the point where you've gone to the gynecologist, they've felt something, they've done an ultrasound, you know, in many of the cancers that we talk about on this show, the next step is a biopsy. But it sounds like that might not always be the case in ovarian cancer. Is that right? Do we always get a biopsy before surgery or do we kind of sometimes just say, well, you know, you're at a certain age, you can have a hysterectomy instead and that will accomplish two goals uh, with one stone? How, how does that work? That's an excellent question, Anise, because you're right. In many other cancers, we would not proceed to surgery directly. We usually would try to get a biopsy. Ovarian cancer is the exception to that um, because of where the ovaries are and how they are. Uh, we never biopsy the ovaries because you can rupture the ovary and potentially you can make that worse if cancer cells are present. So most of the time, if something looks suspicious on on the ultrasound and on pelvic examination, or if women get a CAT scan and MRI, or there's some sort of imaging uh, that shows a suspicious ovary, uh, we would just remove it. We would just take out the ovary and then be able to look at it at the microscope directly without the biopsy. And so when that's done, is a hysterectomy always done at the same time or does it matter where the woman is in her life cycle? So a young woman versus an older woman, for example, or is that just part and parcel of the same surgery? 
Yeah, so exactly the same as what we talked before. Everything is truly individualized. I have a lot of women in their 30s who have had this diagnosis, and um, I would never remove their uterus. I always allow them to continue their life how um, how it was meant to be. Um, and we certainly can do a lot of these surgeries, even if they're cancer, and remove the abnormal ovary, remove some other things that we have to remove, but allow them to continue their normal lives and have normal fertility and be able to carry pregnancy. Um, there's times where that's not possible, um, but in most times in, with, with the young women, we find a way to make it happen. Um, if the woman is older um, and there's cancer present, then yes, of course, we would remove um, the uterus as well and do total hysterectomy, uh, but not the younger women. And so when you do that surgery, Elena, you know, you had mentioned that, you know, many of these cancers are not caught early, unfortunately. And um, and that's one of the things that leads to the high mortality rate associated with ovarian cancer. How many of these cancers have spread outside the ovary when they're first diagnosed? And what impact does that have in terms of treatment and prognosis? So at this point, a lot of them, the great majority of them, uh, 75% or so, are spread to outside of the ovary at the time of diagnosis. Um, and because of that, once we complete their surgery, uh, these women need some sort of additional treatment, which is usually chemotherapy or some sort of a targeted therapy. Uh, but um, myself, among with many other experts in this who now spend so much of our time not just doing surgery and not just doing chemotherapy, but really providing education to women to provide us, we very much believe that this is not the future. The future will be that more and more of these cancers will be found earlier and localized and surgery will be able to cure them. The key, again, is just knowing your body and listening to your body and then seeing the physicians and seeing the providers and then the demanding the care that you deserve, not turning away, you know, if we, when you know something is not what it is, you just say it and you just find the care that you, that, that, that you need. And with that, uh, more and more of these cancers will be found early and the nature of this disease will change. Dr. Elena Ratner is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.